heard my cry. Appalachia itself is a beautiful palimpsest of contradictions. It is layered. There are many Appalachias. When people want to start storytelling about Appalachia, I'm wondering which Appalachia and who's Appalachia. Carita Brown is an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at the University of California in Los Angeles. But she's also a member of what she calls the Eastern Kentucky African-American diaspora with deep personal ties to Harlan County, where her grandparents lived and where much of her extended family still lives. I'm Rachel Geringer. And for this episode of Mountain Talk from WMMT, I spoke with Dr. Brown by phone about her new book, Gone Home, Race and Roots Across Appalachia, and the Eastern Kentucky African American Migration Project, or ECAMP, a public humanities project and community archive out of which Brown's book was born. Over the course of our conversation, Brown shares memories of coming home to Lynch from New York during the summers as a child to visit her family. And she talks about her calling to document histories of black community, work, and migration into and out of the eastern Kentucky coalfields. Along the way, we'll hear religious songs sung by the choirs of two different African-American churches in Harlan County. The current song is I Love the Lord, performed by the Macedonia Baptist Church Choir from Cumberland, Kentucky. Well, thank you again so much for making time for this. Um, And I think to start, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself, um, who you are and where you're from and what you do. Okay. Hello, my name is Corita Brown. I'm a professor of sociology at UCLA, the author of Gone Home, Race and Roots Through Appalachia. But more importantly, I am the proud granddaughter of African-American coal miners from Harlan County, Kentucky. Great. I wonder, I'd love for you to talk kind of more about that, about your personal connection to this place. Um, I, I think you didn't grow up in eastern Kentucky, but you had strong ties and spent time here as a kid. Is that true? Yep, that is correct. So I was born and raised in Long Island, New York. I am an 80s baby, so um, I was born at the tail end of the out-migration out of Harlan County, particularly the coal mining towns of Lynch, Denham, and Cumberland. Um, So, no, I did not grow up there, but my mother and father did, Richard Brown and Arnita Davis. They both grew up in Lynch, Kentucky, um, and both of their fathers were coal miners for U.S. Steel Corporation, and both my grandmothers were homemakers. So um, they're part of the 
the diaspora, this long line of African-American migrants who came to eastern Kentucky in the early 20th century, raised their families for a generation, and then part of that out-migration where their their kids went off to uh, urban centers all over the country at the height of the African-American Great Migration. So I am kind of a a third-generation product of this centuries-long journey of of migration in and through those mountains. Mm. Before we kind of dig into it, because that's also what a lot of your research is focused on, is is the history both really locally here in eastern Kentucky, but also the migration into and out of this region. But I'd, I'd love to know if that you just have any real vivid memories of spending time here as a kid. Um, oh, my God, yes. So, um, so... So me and my brother, uh, of course, we grew up our whole our whole childhoods in New York. But my grandparents were all living. They, you know, they lived in those homes on First and Second Street in Lynch until they passed away. So um, my parents made sure to take us back. They called it back home. So we'd go back home at least twice a year when my grandparents were still living, and sometimes more because. The Memorial Day weekend celebration when most Black families come back from wherever they're living across the country. That was big for us. But, um, you know, that was, Lynch was like a home base where the entire, you know, Brown family or the entire Davis family would uh, would come and get together. Um, and that's true for, for many of the, the uh, family, migrant families who were uh, living outside of of the mountains, mm-hmm. yeah. So you know, I grew up. At, you know, I can remember back until you know, being five years old, uh, back in Lynch and and Benham. I had uh, aunts who lived, who still do live in the community, but um, just running up and down First Street and Second Street and Main Street, and uh, getting together with all the children in the neighborhoods, and it was just such a halcyonic place. Um, growing up in New York, you really couldn't do much as a kid in terms of uh, freedom. Your parents always had to watch you and kind of have an eye on, you know, know exactly where you are. But that wasn't the case when I was, uh, when I was back home because you just, you had this sense of freedom. So I used to think that, you know, oh, I can do whatever I want when I'm there. I could just go outside and <laughs> and just be playing and doing whatever and come back before it got dark. But uh, that wasn't really true. It it was because the neighborhood was so close-knit. Everybody knew everybody. So everybody else's families were looking after, oh, there goes that little brown girl, or there goes Nita and Richard's baby. So I thought I was free, but no, I wasn't free. Everybody just, you know, the, the community cared for the children. So... Um, that is one of my strongest memories, just that feeling of freedom that I, I never got to taste when I was in New York. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Did you, would you be excited, you and your brother, to go when it was time to go to Kentucky? Or were you ever like, ah, we don't want to go when you got older? No, it was super fun. We were always excited because, number one, it would always be a road trip. So it takes 13 hours from Long Island to, uh, to Lynch. So we'd have this long road trip. And my dad used to have one of those, um, 
I guess you call it, we called it a luxury van, but that's probably not what it was. But it was one of these big old vans that had like a pull-out bed in the back oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and so, so um, and why that becomes important is my father is one of 16. Wow. Many of his siblings also had migrated to New York. So we would pile, I mean, <laughs> it could be 12 of us, like <laughs> my aunt, uncles, a bunch of kids. I don't know how we did it, but we just stuffed ourselves in that van and there'd be like, you know, food and and, and not store-bought food. My mom would like cook a bunch of food and we'd bring that on the van. And so it'd be like a, a sleepover on the road. We always stopped at Shoney's for breakfast on the way, like once we got like halfway there, it was like a thing. And then finally, when you get to that point when it's time to go up the mountain, right, when you're, um, when you just reach Black Mountain and you know, you're going to be like swerving left and right and almost puking and everything like that. That was like the culmination of where we made it. Hmm. We're home. So it was just, it was fun from from the car ride to getting there. You know, you have grandparents that spoil you not with things but with love. I don't. Even, I'm not even sure my grandparents even knew my name really like that because <laughs> there were so many of us. But what I do know is like just you know always having a popsicle for me, always cooking something that I liked. Uh, my grandfather playing pranks on me. They were just. Super love. It was just like so loving, and you didn't have to think twice about it, and it was so free. Again, that that word freedom just really comes back to me. Mm. I love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Eating, and then there were kids all over the place. Like you could be, and everybody had like a a a, a lore about them because you know there were kids that were coming from Detroit, some from Chicago, some who lived there, and. We only got to see each other, you know, one, two, three times a year. So I could be, I could reinvent myself and be like the cool New York girl, you know. And, <laughs> um, and everybody would bring their slang or their fashion. I remember always trading my cousin Jay, um, uh, who, who grew up in Lynch, who lived there. Um, we're around the same age. Every year since we were little bitty babies, we both loved fashion. I, we'd always trade something. And back when I was growing up, you know, uh, girls, we, we loved to dress in baggy clothes. So, like, it worked. And, you know, we'd trade jerseys and hats and whatever. But that kept us cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I didn't think I was going to dive into a question about your book so early. But I but am curious because... Because you just said that the word that you think of so much about being in Eastern Kentucky is free. Um, mm-hmm. But I also, you know, I think your book is, is it. there's so many things happening, right? It's, it's connected to sociology. It's connected to sort of oral history. There's studies around migration. There's, there's African-American studies. There's Appalachian studies. Um, <laughs> and given, given sort of that last one, the Appalachian studies focus, I really kind of wanted to ask you about um, something sort of specific in your in the first paragraph of chapter one, where you sort of situate where Harlan County is in the Appalachian region and where it is in Kentucky. And it's 
you know, it's one of the earliest sentences when you get into the book after the introduction where you say, once populated by native tribes dating back to a time unrecorded and by white settlers of Scots-Irish origin as early as the 1670s, this region's history is replete with stories of racial violence towards native and African peoples, frontiersmanship, slavery, poverty, and some of the most notorious family feuds in American history. And so you're both kind of like setting a scene for people who don't know anything about their regional history. But I also think that... Um, it's not common in Appalachian studies that people sort of start by naming histories of racial violence. And I I think <laughs> I think it's important, though, right? Like, it's a thing that yeah. we, I think, people in this region who are involved in in the process of storytelling and documentation and, and lifting up histories, um, this isn't a region that's done a very good job of talking about... Um, People of color that have that have been here that are still here, like it's a very it can be a very whitewashed history, both nationally, of course, right, in terms of the national narrative of this place, uh -huh. but even internally, yeah. I think that's the thing that the I don't think I know that this region really struggles to to like actually talk about race and racism, and so that's a very long introduction to a question, um, which is which is kind of like. Why did you think it was important to start there in your book? Because for me, you know, as an outsider with, who also has deep roots in that place, so I'm a, a walking contradiction even doing this study and writing the book, I wanted to set the stage about how Appalachia itself is a beautiful palimpsest of contradictions. Mm. It is layered. There are many Appalachians. I wanted to just introduce those historical layers and, and contradictions from the beginning, um, because when people want to start storytelling about Appalachia, I'm wondering which Appalachia mm -hmm. and who's Appalachia. So that was really the, the impetus that. Um, when it comes to the question of like settler colonialism and racial violence and the history of, of uh, slavery and other forms of domination um, um, and displacement in the region, that is a story that, um, it, it's, that, is, that, that has many protagonists and antagonists. So uh, one thing that I learned when I got my first job at AIG is be careful how you treat people because the same as you think your chicken might be the one that you're kissing. <laughs> that works perfectly for Appalachia because, you know, while, you know, there's this story of violent displacement and attempted genocide of, of Native peoples, Indigenous peoples in this region, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, that same displacement is, uh, is coming for <laughs> the perpetrator, you know, mm -hmm. in a different era through um, extractive industries, timber, coal, right? So, and you can trace that through history. And uh, again, when you trace the, um, the history of African-Americans in and through that region, same thing. So, so I guess that, that was kind of what was on my heart when I was, when I was trying to, to introduce that. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I so appreciate that because because it feels like just you're from the from the get go in the book. You're really trying to to kind of complicate all sorts of narratives happening in the place at once, you know. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I wonder if you could sort of for for folks who are listening. Um, this is probably a really frustrating question. I'm going to sort of ask you to like summarize what your book is about. For radio, which clearly you wrote a book because there's a lot to say, but (laughs) just to give people like a sense of what you were kind of um, wrestling with and reckoning with in this book. Oh, oh man, that's so hard. I'm sorry. I know. (laughs) Oh, okay. So it's it's many books, right? And I think I'm just going to go back to that metaphor of the palimpsest, the layers. it is, at its core, a book about telling the story of the intergenerational African-American migration into and out of eastern Kentucky, specifically through Harlan County. Um, but it is also a book about this migration um, of African-American subjectivity. So what I mean by that is coming to know yourself and your identity as an interior experience. And this generation of Black folks that I worked with to produce this book, it's a book of world history, um, you know, they were in their 70s and 80s for the most part. I conducted 153 interviews for the book, right? And at the time that they were born, they went in one lifetime from colored to Negro to Black African-American, right? Their rights as citizens in this country transformed in one lifetime. So the rights that they had as children uh, were not the same. The the, the America that they came to uh, live in as adults was not the same that they experienced as children. So it's also this book about the migration of of Black folks into African-American citizenship, full kind of rights in this country. Um, yeah, so it it touches on yes, it's about the place and the region, but it's also about racial consciousness and and racial identity. How do we come to know ourselves not as people, but as black people, right? And you and you learn that through uh, society and through your community. So it's also telling that story. Mm. And so. Because migration is such a is such a theme in the book, right? And is such a the way you just described it, you're talking about that in multiple ways. You're not only talking about like a physical process of moving, but but this larger sort of societal migration. Um, I'm curious, like, are there are there things about your personal story that dr- draws you to this theme? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, that this book is personal. So although, like, I am a sociologist, um, I was uh, trained in in social demography, uh, which studies uh, populations and um, migration, birth rates, death rates, all that kind of stuff. But at the core of it, this project and what became this book and the archive has always been deeply personal, um, and that's the impetus. So I'll tell you how I came to the project. Yeah. I like I mentioned, had been coming home for um, all my life, right, all my childhood. But there came a point when I was, when I became a teenager, where 
you know, I had my own life, so did my brother, and we kind of were too cool for all that. And my grandparents had passed on. Um, and what that what that meant for me was 10 or 10 or 12 years, something like that, had gone by without me going back to Lynch. And um, so I kind of lost touch with, with the, that part of my roots. And I entered my first year of grad school at Brown. We got out in May, right before Memorial Day weekend. And my daddy called and said, why don't you come home this year? And I knew. My parents lived in Atlanta. I knew he was talking about Kentucky. Mm. And I just said, okay, Daddy, I'll be there. And I came home. Uh, I was sitting on my grandmother's porch, 422 First Street in Lynch, and all my, you know, aunts and uncles were there from Cleveland, and we're just hanging out. And there was this moment. I, I mean, it was like in my gut something said, this, this is your project. You have to tell this story. Like, I was just looking up and down the street. It was like, it seemed like the community was a third of the size as than I remembered it. Mm. And where were all the people? What happened to all these families that I knew? You know, and it wasn't just that folks were passing away. There was just a goneness mm. to it. And I couldn't explain it. And I just knew that that was... Um, the story that I was supposed to tell and, you know, I wanted to find a way to um, bring uh, what I find to be a very hostile discipline to make sociology learn something from oral history. Hmm. And, and that kind of, I, I, and this project taught me how to do that. So I didn't have a model or a framework or even uh, an advisor who could, who could like say, oh, well, this is how you would do this. The people in this study, those voices that you'll hear in this book, they taught me how to do this research. They taught me what was interesting and important in terms of what mattered in, for their stories. And it was, a, um, for me, a process of, of, it was humbling. It was a process of surrender, and I learned so much. I feel like I got a, a second Ph.D. from them. Um, in doing this work. Mm. Well, so that's the long way of saying it. There's no, to me, there, I can't separate the personal from from the, the scholarly, scholarly research, and I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it really, it, it really shows in this work, and um, there's, there's a longer conversation we could have, and we might dip into some around sort of um, some of the conversations in academia around the personal mm-hmm. and your scholarly work, which is gets so complicated, right, in terms mm-hmm. of different disciplines, ideas of how that should look. <laughs> but um, I'll just be upfront that my opinion is that it that it creates the possibility for like just deeper and stronger work when there is this this personal piece that um, that that shakes up some of those sort of like the researcher and the subject roles, right? Because you're yeah. have a foot in both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, who, it's also this goes to this question about, you know, who's allowed to be a knowledge worker? Who mm. produces knowledge? And it's not just folks in academia. So, um, you know, we, we often say that, you know, or I know that I was trained to be what we call reflexive about, you know, your role as as researcher and 
you know, what kind of power dynamics does that introduce? But on the ground, at the end of the day, you know, unfortunately, we end up doing what we want too often. And I, um, you know, I, I know that I, there's so many things that I could have done differently with this book, and it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. And I'm not perfect. But what I can say is um, when you read through those pages, I give them space in that book where, you know, where it's like, you know, who gets to, who even gets to speak mm-hmm. on the page? And I thought a lot about that um, instead of, you know, you'll, you'll notice there are parts in the book where it's just like literally like pages of just quotes from my research participants. Mm-hmm. And that is intentional because why should I tell you what I think they said or interpret what they said instead of just putting what they said there? Yeah. They, no one can say it better than them. And it's their lives and their story and their experiences. So, you know, I my silent protest in the book, I guess, to sociologists and to academicians is, you know, uh, share. Mm. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we're learning about the work of Dr. Carita Brown, an assistant professor of sociology and African American studies at the University of California in Los Angeles. Her book, Gone Home, Race and Roots Across Appalachia, was published in 2018 by the University of North Carolina Press. The book tells stories of African Americans living and working in the eastern Kentucky coalfields and offers a sweeping look at race, identity, and black migration in the region and beyond. In the second half of our conversation, Dr. Brown talks about the eastern Kentucky African American migration project out of which the book was born. And she talks about community archives and her hopes for the ways in which the collection will be engaged with moving forward. But before we get back to the interview, we'll hear the Macedonia Church Choir from Harlan County, Kentucky, performing Hallelujah, the Almighty Reigns with the help of Ethel Caffey Austin, West Virginia's first lady of gospel music. This recording is from their live performance at Apple Shop's Seed Time on the Cumberland Festival in 1994. And then we'll hear clips from some of the oral history interviews Carita Brown conducted through her research with folks from Harlan County, who share memories of their parents and their childhoods in the eastern Kentucky coal fields.
just said back home, uh, and, and, and I always end with this question, uh, in, you, in your heart, where is home for you? Lynch. <laughs> oh, Lynch will always be my home. You've been here for decades. I've been here 44 years. Lynch is my home. I just moved out to California. <laughs> but when you say home, uh-uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Kentuckian. Born and bred right there in Lynch, Kentucky. It was pitch black from head to toe. All you could see were his eyes, you know. And I guess he saw me staring at him. And he looked down at me, and my mother looked at me, and she said, Claire, do you know who that is? And I was like, no. She said, that's your daddy. I looked at him, and I hit him. I said, daddy, that's you. <laughs> and then my hand was black. That's just how dirty they were when they came out of the mines. You couldn't see anything on him that I, would make me know that that was my father. Well, I think it was a fun time. It's a time, really, you'd like to go back to. Growing up, everybody was like family. Children were everywhere because there was big families everywhere. The Brown family seemed had 15. My family had about 15. The Pettigrew family had about 15. So it was children coming out of the woodwork, as my mother would call it, you know. And we just had a good time. And we'd play ball, and we'd go down to the park by the school and play in the ball field. And, and we just had a good time with each other, ride bikes. And it was a fun time. It really was. Some people look at it, oh, a coal mining camp. Yes, a coal mining camp, but it was a loving camp. My father's name was Clark Smith, and uh, he was coal miner. As far as I know, they didn't talk about their roots too much. I know they were both from Alabama. It's very hard sometimes to really get to know coal mining father. He wasn't, he kept a lot of stuff to himself. He wouldn't tell you a whole lot. But he, wouldn't, he wouldn't talk much when he wasn't drinking. Dangerous job, man. It, it, it's, it's all that. I know he told me he used to go in the mine, and the mine, when you first started, be three feet off the ground. And he said they would dig, start digging, and all the dust would fly back in your face. No, no, no safety. And he said he'd be black as that, that cold. Uh, they were from uh, Alabama, uh, somewhere around Utah, Alabama, Tuscaloosa, Aliceville, down in that area. Yeah, they came from Alabama up into Lynch, Kentucky, where they needed coal mining. I think my mother and them, they descended from Alabama to the state of Kentucky. They came out of the state of Alabama. Now, that was something that uh, my daddy never talked about very much. He never talked to him. He, he never tell us. He would never tell us hardly anything. No, he never. He, he never talk about it. Now let's get back to my conversation with Carita Brown about her book *Gone Home: Race and Roots Through Appalachia* and the Eastern Kentucky African American Migration Project, a community-driven archival and public humanities project from which the book was born. So you sort of told us this this like moment where you were just struck by needing to do this project. Um, there's kind of the longer Eastern Kentucky African-American migration project of oral histories that culminate with this book as well as like a gallery exhibit, but that sort of existed before the book. And I'm, I'm curious about sort of the timeline of that project from the story that you just told about being struck with this need to do this work. Um, 
And then and then how what that's looked like, like how long it's taken some of the logistics. How did you start this like pretty huge undertaking? Because you weren't just doing interviews in eastern Kentucky. You were doing interviews across the country with people with ties to this place. Yeah. So let me just spill all the tea, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, here's the secret. Um, anything that, that that's really great like that, and I, I think that E-Camp is, um, that's what we lovingly call the Eastern Kentucky African American Migration Project. Um, anything great like that, nobody did it alone. So the the real truth about it is, is that project came to be because I had such a um, wonderful community of uh, folks, both inside and outside of academic institutions, that believed in the in the idea of the project and wanted to be a part of it in one way or the other. And there are people who literally opened doors for me, um, uh, helped me work on this project and put blood, sweat, tears, and money into this thing. Um, and that is the only reason that it, it even had the chance of, of working. So I'll give you a little bit of background, okay? Sure. So I was in grad school. Um, again, I started this project pretty much right after that Memorial Day um, uh, weekend, my, my, after once I finished my first year in the program, sociology program at Brown, right? I have no idea what I'm doing. We do not get trained in, like, interview-based methods or anything like that. I just was literally a fish out of water, but I knew I wanted to do this, get this project started, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I thought mentorship and training obviously within my own institution, and I got the best advice ever. Um, I talked to an archivist at Brown, and she said, honey, we don't have an expertise in um, in African-American uh, uh, history and culture, so you're going to go want to work with some institution that has that expertise. And that comes in terms of, like, preserving stories mm. and archiving, mm-hmm. right? Best advice, because she could have just led me down, you know, a fault, sold me a bunch of dreams, and I just would have been frustrated with trying to, to, to do that work there. So that is how I started reaching out to scholars at other institutions to see if I could just find some advice or help about what maybe I could do with this project, because what I quickly ran into when I took my first uh, road trip um, was that the, my research participants had fantastic stories that were so rich and went beyond what I thought. I thought I was just doing a project on migration. Mm. What they taught me was, no, honey, I'm going to teach you about the United States history. I'm going to teach you about the uh, the coming and transformation of, through the pre- and post-civil rights era through my lived experience. I'm going to teach you about neighborhood change and gentrification and displacement through my lived experience. And they just blew my mind with these stories. And I knew, number one, that I would never be able to do it justice with just my book. I also knew that it would be a a tragedy for me to keep these stories to myself. And I also knew that 
many of them had a desire because they told me so, you know, that, um, that they would like a way to preserve their history because they wanted their grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and so on to know about where they came from and the way that, you know, things are going um, back in, um, in those cold towns. You know, we don't know how, how much longer those communities are going to survive in that way. Mm-hmm. So I knew I needed an archive, but I also knew that I had no idea what I was doing and the best thing that ever happened to me, um, uh, Dr. Bill Turner invited me to the Appalachian Studies Association Conference in Boone, North Carolina. We went, and there uh, Bill Ferris gave the keynote address, uh, and it was just so moving and beautiful. And I looked and I said, that is how I want to make people feel with my work. Mm. I don't know what this is, but... That's what I want to do, and that's how I came to oral history. Long story short, I um, uh, met Bill, told him about my project, and he immediately, the first thing he did was introduce me to the director of the Southern Historical Collection at UNC. And as you know, that um, archive uh, holds the largest special collections on the American South. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they were looking to grow their collections on African-American history and culture. So, I mean, it just couldn't have worked better. And there I worked with an awesome team of professional archivists who helped me um, design a model to, uh, to come up with a way to, to preserve the, the, the interviews, but also to archive the materials that came out of the project. So in that archive are all sorts of records, photos, um, there's a wedding dress in the archive, uh, all of the oral histories, but you can't do something that, like that alone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, was, it was through this community of participants who were so willing to give their beautiful stories and to trust me with them, but it was also this uh, kick-ass group of professionals at UNC Chapel Hill at the Southern Historical Collection, who made this happen. And there were private donors who donated uh, money and resources to make sure that I could travel. You know, it's expensive to travel the country like that. I was on the road for three years. Mm, Yeah. You know? So, and and I think it's important for um, people like me, because at the end of of the day, it's my name on that book, but really... It, there should be about 200 names, authors of that book. I, I didn't do any of it on my own. In fact, most of the time, I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You describe the Eastern Kentucky African American Migration Project, ECAMP, as a community-driven archival and digital humanities project. And so as a that implies that it sort of lives outside of just the book. Um, but you also mentioned sort of um, wanting to make sociology learn something from oral history. And so I wonder if you could sort of talk about how you would define a community-driven kind of archival project. And and if you could talk a little bit more about that sort of relationship between sociology and oral history and what you were trying to do there. So um, community-driven archives 
um, you know, the institutional logic uh, for uh, building archival collections. Um, you know, an archive is constituted within the institution by professional archivists. And it is the archivist's job to not only anticipate what collections, what topics might be interesting to their um, um, clientele, which most of the time they have uh, researchers in mind. Um, they, it's their job to, to kind of identify that and then uh, build a collecting strategy around that vision, right? So every archive has a different kind of collecting scope. Um, but what does that do? That sets the terms of value, of interest. Um, you know, it's a very institution-centered and, like, researcher or clientele-centered model. Um, and a community-driven archive turns that on its head, where, you know, it's a model designed to work with uh, living populations who are not in necessarily a part of any, have no relational ties to the institution, but the archive, the institution, wants to form a relationship. A community-driven archive model, the knowledge producers, those who articulate the, the um, focus of a collection, um, also what the you know, important features of a collection, those ideas come from the community members and the archivists and um, library professionals are there to facilitate, support, educate, and serve the community in achieving their goals. That is, it sounds simple, but that is literally like a disruptive model to how archiving has, has gone for, you know, all of the 20th century and much of the 21st century. So community archives are like um, hot right now with a lot of many different institutions. Uh, the Southern Historical Collection is one of many um, um, archives that, that's entering into this space. Um, but we're, we're so excited about doing it because it, it also kind of shakes up those power dynamics that are automatically laden in the idea that someone working in a building, in a library, knows better than the people living it how, what to collect, how to tell that story, what's important, what goes in, what goes out. You know, so it's kind of a relinquishing of the idea that, um, and I'll say we, I'm not, a, I'm not an archivist, but I, I play one on TV. So I work <laughs> so closely with them. You know, it's relinquishing that idea that we know everything because we don't. You know, so let's share some of that, um, that responsibility, but also some of that power that comes along with, uh, with developing collections and that, my friend, transforms the type of uh, stories that we can tell from the archive, mm-hmm. right? The materials look radically different when they, when they come in that way. So that's, that's what I'm excited about with the community-driven archives. This is kind of a broad question, but I guess um, you've talked some about what motivated you and, and drew you to this work, and I'm curious kind of what the impact of this book, of this um, community-driven archive, of this whole project um, will be both for people still living in Harlan County, um, Kentucky, and people who, like yourself, will always call home Harlan County, even if it's not where you live. 
You know, I I don't know, and I don't know that I ever want to know. Um, and I'm talking about impact, and I and I and I'm I want to tell you what I mean by that. Um, the book is gonna do it. It's its own thing, and it's gonna have its own life. I, you know, it was my job to write it. You know, that was what was on my spirit. How it's received in the world. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know. Um, um, I, I, my intentions is that it uh, is a healing book, that it's an educational book, that it elevates uh, um, all of our consciousness a little bit about how we think about uh, race and place and people and uh, history and culture. But maybe it won't do any of those things. Maybe it'll do something else. I, I don't know. Um, and the same thing for eCamp. My hope is that, you know, it lives way beyond me. So I hope I never get to see the actual end of of what it does. Um, I hope that it is life-giving, and it really is the community's responsibility, including myself, to keep it going, to keep, you know, donating to those collections, to shape that archive. Um, um, And, you know, archives have many life cycles. So most of my job was constituting that archive and filling it with its first layer of stuff, right? These oral histories. I went out and collected some materials uh, that, that folks wanted to donate to the collection. But then it'll go into this phase where, you know, folks will independently start doing that. And then also, then researchers and families and communities, they'll start using those collections, and who knows what comes out of those. I hope it's artistic. I hope there are exhibits. I hope there are other books that come out of this work. I, I, I hope that young people and their families go to that archive and listen to the clips of their elders telling their stories, and maybe they play them at family reunions. Those are just some uh, hopes and dreams that I have, but maybe I'm too limited in my scope, and I, I hope I can be surprised, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, by, by what else can come from it. But, but really, um, I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for making the time for this and for this really, really important and really impressive work that you have been doing for years to to kind of uplift some history that's really important both in this region locally but also to national conversations so i've really enjoyed talking to you and thank you oh thank you so much this has been really great you know that i shall not be moved i shall not be moved i shall not be moved That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring Karita Brown, Assistant Professor of Sociology and African American Studies at the University of California in Los Angeles, and the author of the book Gone Home, Race and Roots Through Appalachia, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2018. Music on this episode features the Macedonia Baptist Church Choir from Cumberland, Kentucky, with I Love the Lord and Hallelujah the Almighty Reigns. For the second song, they were joined by West Virginia's first lady of gospel music, Ethel Caffey Austin. 
Both of those songs were recorded during their live performance at Apple Shop's annual Seed Time on the Cumberland Festival in 1994. The remainder of the music you'll hear on this program features the Mount Sinai Spirituals performing live at the Poor People's Campaign visit to Benham, Kentucky on March 29, 2018. If you liked what you heard and want to listen to this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at WMMT.org or listen to Mountain Talk as a podcast on SoundCloud or Stitcher. I'm Rachel Geringer, and I've been your host. And from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio from the heart of the hills in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Don't blow